morning, folks. It's uh, Ed Fallon, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. Or good afternoon if you're listening on one of our community-owned stations elsewhere in the country. Hey, this is uh, our live broadcast here Monday at 11 o'clock Central Time from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We are on the station here in Des Moines, La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Hey, a quick shout-out to our business partners in the local metro area here. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been practicing her trade on creatures large and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Also, thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines. Fair Trade Coffee. Fair trade tea and an all vegetarian menu. And thanks to Noche, that's Central Iowa's premier home for jazz and cabaret, attracting both uh, national acts, uh, local favorites, and featuring a world class cocktail bar. Check out Noche, folks. They're on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. And finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. Located on Southeast 14th Street, authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices and excellent friendly service. That's Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. All right, so a quick overview of our program lineup today, folks. Uh, well, first we're going to talk about uh, climate change. Uh, I'll give you a little bit more of a rundown on that in a second. In the uh, second segment of our program, Kathy Burns is going to join us to talk about an urban farming initiative in Des Moines called Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Later, we'll talk about the Iowa caucus update, which I know is of interest to people around the country. Um, candidates here as thick as flies. And, uh, of course, two have just dropped out. Two more jumped in. <laughs> we'll talk about some of the interactions we're having here. We'll also talk about the climate justification trial, uh, which had a ruling last week. And there is it's not over yet. And finally, in the final segment of our show, we'll talk about how Energy Transfer Partners continues to push to expand the Dakota Access Pipeline, even as pipeline companies are getting pushback from landowners, farmers, environmentalists, native communities all across the country. We'll give you an update on that interesting twist in that whole conversation. Uh, but first, uh, yeah, let me uh, – you know, climate update is, an, is a regular weekly feature of this program. And the challenge is not what to talk about. The challenge is what not to talk about. Well, let's talk about one of the biggest uh, concerns yet to come out. Uh, and this is a, from a, a no, November 27th uh, article in New Scientist uh, titled, Climate Change Could Trigger Huge Drops in Food Production by 2100. The article points out that 90% uh, of the world's population could well be living in countries, regions, where food production is falling significantly, not just on the land, but on fisheries as well. And that, um, that is very likely to happen by the end of the century if climate ch change continues to move forward at the current pace. So um, research done by uh, Lorik Thielt uh, with the um, Research University in Paris uh, have kind of tried to tie together concerns about fisheries and concerns about agriculture and looking at the bigger picture because, again, those are the two biggest sources of our food supply. Uh, Thielt says, uh, quote, productivity losses are very likely going to be inevitable in some places, but climate mitigation has a big impact on how big those losses are going to be. Uh, the uh, report goes on to say that agriculture will see a 25% reduction in productivity under the worst-case climate scenario. If we do more to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the decline in productivity could be as little as 5%. Now, that's for agriculture, land-based agriculture, for fisheries, meaning the oceans and, of course, uh, I think that includes uh, uh, fish, uh, farm fishing as well. For fisheries, though, the difference is a fall of 60% versus 10%. So, you know, and, and here's my concern. is Science has been wrong about climate change. They've been wrong in that they have severely underestimated the pace of change. And my concern here is that this is, a, this is an important warning, and I think it's really important that we're hearing 
researchers, scientists, universities, government officials talking about likely food shortages because most of the conversation is about heat waves, about drought, about flooding, about ice melt, and those are important conversations to have. But, you know, when you start talking about how all that comes together and impacts the food supply, uh, you're looking at some pretty serious um, serious concerns. And my my problem is, so far, scientists have been wrong in terms of the time frame. They're right in terms of all the impacts. They're right in terms of what's supposed to be happening. They're wrong in terms of the timing. And that was brought home in another series of articles that came out this past week. And I, I, my, my, one of my favorite uh, publications in the uh, media world is The Guardian, which I think is doing a bang-up job at looking at the climate crisis consistently, not just an occasional article here and there, but uh, all the time. They're, they're always digging into it. Every day they're looking at some angle of it. Uh, this article, again, again from November 27, uh, entitled uh, Climate Emergency, would, sorry, World May Have Crossed Tipping Points, uh, Warning of exist- Existential Threat to Civilization as Impacts Lead to Cascade of Unstoppable Events. So, so what does that mean, a cascade of unstoppable events? Well, oftentimes what climate scientists have been referring to are tipping points, climate tipping points. And They've been looking at these various tipping points that are likely to happen in the future. And if they happen, we should be very concerned. But they've always been kind of, well, you know, we've got till 2030, we've got till 2050, we've got till 2100. But now, according to this study, the world may already have crossed nine of those tipping points. And the report says the the scientists who put together this study say we are already in a state of planetary emergency. I'll read you a couple of. Segments from this uh, story in The Guardian. Uh, quote, tipping points are reached when particular impacts of global heating become, um, become, um, sorry, become unstoppable, such as the runaway loss of ice sheets or forests. In the past, extreme heating of 5 degrees Celsius was thought necessary to pass tipping points. But the latest evidence suggests this could happen between 1 degree Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius. Okay, now that's a huge difference. That's a big mistake. Again, scientists have been right on climate change. Again, they're wrong about the pace of change. And so I'm, it's very disturbing to see this because it says that we have an emergency on our hands right now. This is not an emergency in 2030, 2050, 2100. It's happening now. And if the difference between igniting one of those tipping points is 5 degrees Celsius versus 1 degree, well, that's a huge difference, folks. And we're already at one degree Celsius. And that is going to increase due to past emissions and also because we are still seeing a rising level of greenhouse gas emissions. Even though the warnings are clear, even though the Paris Climate Summit agreed that we should keep the global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, levels of carbon emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions are still rising. So, you know, and again... It's not just carbon, methane. And uh, as methane is released when the permafrost in the Arctic regions thaws, uh, again, that, that's, part of the, that's a big part of the equation of leading to that cascade of impacts. So scientists in this report are saying, quote, the potential damage from the tipping points is so big and the time to act so short that to err on the side of danger is not a responsible option. And they're calling for urgent and international action. And again, so just to look at what some of these tipping points are specifically, the West Antarctica ice sheet is now in irreversible retreat. And again, when those ice sheets melt, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, pent-up you know, moisture that will flow into the oceans from those. Uh, again, raising the sea level by, 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 who knows, 10, 20, 30 feet, maybe more. The massive Greenland ice sheet, that has been melting at an accelerated rate. And again, even a bigger concern is the permafrost in the Arctic, that as the Arctic thaws, that methane is released. 
Um, and this is, this is one that uh, if you saw the movie The Day After Tomorrow, you might remember this. And you might have thought it was sci-fi. You know, and I did too. When, when the, uh, the Gulf Stream stopped moving and Europe basically froze <laughs> and a huge storm was unleashed. Now, I asked some scientists a couple, three actually, after that uh, movie, said, is that real? Is that what could happen? And they said, absolutely. The only, the only thing about the movie was it sped up the time frame a bit, but not that much. And that is what's happening. The Gulf Stream is now slower by 15% than it was back in the middle, middle of the 20th century. Now, there is, there is, a, there is a natural variability in the, in, the rate of the, in the rate of that current, but that's at, the, that's at the very upper edge of it. If the trend continues and the Gulf Stream slows, it's hard to say where that's going to go. But remember, uh, Ireland, my second home, is pretty much across from Hudson Bay. And when we think of Hudson Bay, we think of, we think of lots of cold. We think of lots of snow and ice and polar bears. And Ireland grows, grows palm trees. Why is that? Oh, that's the Gulf Stream. That's what keeps Europe... Europe, <laughs> without the Gulf Stream, uh, that whole area is in deep trouble. So um, in addition to those tipping points, uh, 70% of the Amazon rainforest has been lost since 1970. That's huge. And uh, the projected tipping point there is 20 to 40%. Uh, when, when you get to the point where 20, 20 to 40% of the Amazon rainforest is, is lost, then that leads to a drying out that could pretty much decimate the entire forest. And, of course, other tipping points, um, uh, melting Arctic sea ice, uh, uh, also exposes a dark ocean that then absorbs more sunlight. And that may cause, likely to cause more more melting. So you know, this all sounds gloom and doom. And, uh, yeah, it is gloom. And... It might be doomed unless we get our act together. And again, I, you know, the the, the Antarctica. The, there's additional stories out there this week about the Antarctica, the, the Antarctic ice loss, and uh, it's it's concerning. You know, scientists have have long, uh, you know, suspected that uh, when the floating ice around the Antarctica is 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 um, melted because of warmer currents coming under them. They were concerned about the, what that would mean for the uh, landlocked ice beyond it, and now and now they're now they're able to verify that. Yeah, um, it's a big deal. Because uh, here's a quote from uh, Professor Hilmar Gunmutsen of the um, Northumbria University in the in England. It's, quote: If you thin the ice shelves today, the increase in flow of the ice upstream will increase today. Not tomorrow, not in 10 or 100 years from now. It will happen immediately. And that's what's happening. You know, again, the entire continent of Antarctica, it's, uh, it's surrounded by these, these rather thick um, you know, shelves of floating ice. And um, you know, that's, they, they, kind of, they kind of keep those glaciers from draining off the land into the sea. And they're melting. And as they melt, that whole movement of glacier from the land to the sea is, 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 is uh, accelerated. So I'm hoping that the UN Climate Summit, which starts today in Madrid, because Brazil didn't want it, and Chile, Santiago Chile took it, and then had to pass it off because of uh, public unrest there. Madrid stepped up to the plate with, what, three weeks' notice, uh, this is a huge logistical challenge. As somebody who does a lot of organizing in my work, I can only imagine what's involved in putting that together. Hopefully, all these new things that have happened this past week will inspire a new level of urgency among the, what, 29 or so thousand people from 200 countries who are attending. Hopefully, it will inspire a new level of urgency. Uh, and again, in 2020, when the, uh, when the UN Climate Summit convenes in Glasgow, Scotland in November, uh, that's kind of been projected as a time when we've got we to really get down to detail on what we do regarding our Paris Climate Accord commitments. Well, they, they really ought to go further and faster because the science is in. 
Well, it continues to come in, but what's coming in now is very disturbing. So, um, and to his credit again, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, uh, warned at the start of the conference this morning that, quote, the point of no return is no longer over the horizon. It is in sight and hurtling toward us. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. I mean, this will be an interesting two weeks. Uh, we'll certainly keep abreast of it here and report back next week in terms of what progress is being made. Hopefully it will be progress. Uh, one matter of uh, one matter matter that is disturbing is that um, again yeah there will be uh, they're expecting 29,000 visitors including 50 heads of states now uh, the European Union's countries will be well represented uh, they they have um, indicated their uh, enthusiasm for taking climate seriously unfortunately the US China and India the three largest carbon emitters in the world will be sending ministerial or lower-level officials to the meeting, uh, not any high-ranking officials, and certainly not President Trump, who continues to live in denial of the reality that is uh, becoming more and more clear to more and more people. Uh, besides the UN Climate Summit, there is good news out there, uh, and some of it's, it may seem like small stuff, but it all matters. In Missouri, teachers are schooling kids on climate change, even though it's not required. It is required in certain areas of the curriculum, but part of the problem is, um, well, actually, it's, 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 uh, it's, you're able to teach it in certain scientific areas of the curriculum, but you, um, <laughs> you don't have to. And again, you don't have to take those courses. So some of these teachers are trying to make sure that kids, all, all kids have some exposure to the importance of climate change. Now, their challenge is to make kids aware of just how urgent it is without scaring the dickens out of them. And um, yeah, one, one teacher says, it's not just, oh, look what's happening, but oh, do you fix it? How, how do you design a solution? How do you mitigate it? And again, one of the teachers featured in this story, uh, Mrs. Apple, says, this is really urgent, but you don't want to scare them because a lot of times when you scare people too much, then they can just kind of give up and shut down. That's an important point, although at the same time, if you, you we need to be honest with people, and it's not, it's, 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 uh, it's wrong not to feel some fear at what's going on with our climate right now. Now, um, another response, again, besides, uh, there's so many things happening, it's, it's impossible to talk about them all, but I thought this one was of interest. Uh, Senator John Kerry, former candidate for president, John Kerry, uh, launches a star-studded climate coalition, according to this story of the New York Times. Uh, it's called the World War Zero, which is interesting. I think that uh, a tip of the hat to the climate mobilization, which formed again about five or six years ago to, uh, to highlight the urgency of climate change. And as much as I've talked about, they, they talk about also the, the comparison to World War II. We had an urgent situation and then we, well, we weren't doing anything for a long time. And then suddenly we responded. And when we responded, we did so in a big way. And that's what needs to happen with climate change. So I, I think it's, um, it's a good choice of names. You've got uh, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter are part of the effort. Uh, um, <laughs> Jimmy Carter, of course, who did some stuff relevant to climate change way back in the 70s, 80s. Bill Clinton, who, well, pretty much did nothing. But um, <laughs> I'm glad he's on board. And then you've got uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ah, anyway, John Kasich. Um, although John Kasich made it clear that uh, he's pro-fracking, you know. So he's going to keep he's going to keep his uh, keep his commitment to uh, fracking. Um, I don't know how you can be a serious uh, participant in a in a, in a in a coalition to try to tackle climate change and still believe that fracking has any role to play in a world that obviously has to move beyond all fossil fuel consumption as, as quickly as possible. Because remember, you know, while carbon dioxide may be the primary concern relevant to coal and oil, and yeah, natural gas might produce less carbon dioxide, its greenhouse gas footprint when it comes to methane is huge, and methane is so much more devastating in the short term in terms of its immediate impact on climate. 
anyway, those are some good things happening, again, with some caveats, but uh, we have to continue to look forward to seeing um, how these things play out. Later in the program, I'll also talk about uh, some of the potentially positive developments in the fight against the expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. I'll also talk about the Iowa Climate uh, Justification Trial, which just took a new twist. But when we come back from a break, we're going to talk about another solution. The importance of local foods, not just farms in the countryside raising food, but what people in an urban environment can do to raise food. We'll be back in a minute, folks, to talk about that on the Fallon Farm. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you here. Again, a quick look ahead of the rest of the program. We'll give you an Iowa caucus update later. Yeah, more candidates dropping out, some dropping in. And we've had quite a few conversations about climate with, uh, well, five or six candidates recently. Also talk about the climate justification trial, which is interesting. But first, I want to welcome Kathy Burns to the program. Uh, 
Uh, Kathy and I are collaborating on a new urban in urban farming venture called Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Good to see you today. <laughs> Good to see you too. <laughs> so. Uh, tell us about this birds and bees thing you've got going on here. Well, as you know, uh, in at our place, we farm, and we farm the yard. It's about an eighth of an acre, and we grow more than 30 kinds of fruits and vegetables in raised beds mostly um, and up on walls and along fences and anywhere we can, so we make good use of the space. Um, for a couple of years, when people stop by, they want to tour the farm, and then so many of them say, I want to learn to do that. So after 16 years with a different organization, I stopped doing that, and I incorporated Birds and Bees Urban Farm as a nonprofit to help other people learn to farm their yards and feed themselves, and yeah. you're a big part of that. Well, let's see. It'll be interesting to see how many people who said, hey, I want to learn how to do that, <laughs> I actually want to invest the time and effort in learning how to do that because it's not, you know, it, I would say it's a, it's a little more work than mowing your lawn every day or every week. But it's also there's also the benefit of having all this food. If you if you really learn how to, you know, garden intensively, you can produce a heck of a lot of food. I know. I'm thinking about last night, very impromptu we had four people come to dinner. You made roasted turnips with it was it turnip greens? Uh, turn, roasted turnips and then a separate batch of uh, greens with yeah, greens. turnip greens. Yeah. And um uh we serve some of our own honey uh, I, I don't know. We had we had just garden set. Yeah, squumpkin pie. Oh yeah, squumpkin. Squumpkin is pie. your a, 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 an accidental hybrid cross between a butternut squash and a heirloom pumpkin. Who saw that coming? You know, it's great. It's it, delicious. They, they taste great. They produce a lot. They keep a lot. We had one last till June last year. Right. So, yeah, you can have squumpkin all year round if you plan right. <laughs> well, our workshops that we're going to offer start in February, and it's a workshop series. So February through November, once a month, you'll come to our place and spend a couple of hours with other aspiring, more intensive gardeners, urban farmers, whatever your goal is for your space. We can help you plan that out and learn the year-long kind of a series of activities that can help you produce some really good food. Yeah, some, some folks uh, maybe just be interested in one eight by four foot garden bed, and I understand why. You know, if you're new to this, uh, you might want to take a small chunk yep. to get started. There may be folks who are ready to go all the way and take their entire yard and make it food, and uh, that's what we've done. And even even on a, even on an eighth of an acre, we produce enough food. Uh, to be defined as a farm according to the USDA definition, which is kind of cool. Not that I have, right. you know, not that I really rely on the USDA to tell me what farming is, but uh, <laughs> we do qualify. And there, I know there are people who want to do that. Uh, you know, to me, it makes a lot of sense um, health-wise. It's also a way to avoid having to pay to join a health club because uh, between shoveling, um, sawing wood, Turning compost, what else? Right. Raking. Raking. You've got a full upper body workout. <laughs> One thing I like, you mentioned raking, and we've done a lot of raking this year already. We still have a little bit more to do when the ground is clear, but we don't put anything out to to be disposed of elsewhere. We use what, what falls in our yard we use, and uh, well, some of that is chicken manure, frankly. Uh, what It falls in the yard, well, in the chicken In the pen, poop, yeah. In the pen. Uh, so we use what's there. And I like the fact that we, we have built – we didn't just suddenly have more than 30 raised beds. But, but over over the years, you started that, and then I helped add to it. Um, but I, I, we have a good system, and we, we know how to save the seeds. We know how to you know, start the seedlings. Our artichokes are already this big. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so we have a lot we can share with people. And, and the, one of the most important things is, is localized food. Yeah. And there is something to do every month of the year. I mean, right now we're – and we're getting our artichokes started. And uh, folks are saying, why are you starting artichokes <laughs> in December? Well, they're a biennial. And those biennials are sneaky and tricky, and we've got to fool them. We've got to get them to believe that uh, by the time we plant them in April, they've already been through their first year of existence, and they're ready to get out there and produce fruit. Yeah, and so, it's good fruit. We just well, said, and actually, it's not the fruit that we eat. It's well, the bud. True. We really don't let it get to the point of fruit. No, because if we do, <laughs> then we can't eat, eat right. the 
buds. Yeah. Well, we we let it we let it go to fruit in order to save the seed from maybe one one you know one right. bud. But the um, there's always something to do. I mean, right now my next big task is to get the basement cleaned up. <laughs> it's a mess. You've kept it pretty clean well, off yeah. and on. It's a mess and by I, my high standards. Put it that way. Yes. Yeah. It won't be long before all the tables in the basement have grow lights on top, you know, coming down to light them, and we're going to have seedlings uh, all across the basement. And, I, you know, I, I, I want to tie this in with the earlier conversation <clears throat> and the later conversation we'll have about climate change, too, because, uh, you know, the, as uh, the, the first, very first thing I talked about on this program was uh, food insecurity mm-hmm. and the 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 almost certainty that food production is going to decline as climate change advances, and you know there's there's no foop, uh, foolproof uh, approach to dealing with that reality. But the truth is, if you have small scale operations, if you have some you know some ability to control production yourself, you have a lot more resilience. I mean, one there are, there are already ways we've already adapted to climate change in our operation. For example, planting garlic. Right. Uh, um, for the most part, later, although this year we planted it earlier because of a very uh, early hit from the polar vortex. But we've also found out that we can grow greens better uh, using cold frames, that we can have those ready to go by March and April. So, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a certain uh, a huge benefit to having that local self-reliance. But, you know, it's something that really has to catch on community-wide. And that's why I'm hoping that city governments mm-hmm. begin to take this more seriously and start finding ways of investing in not just community gardens, but in helping city residents do more themselves. Right. Uh, community gardens are great if you can travel to it and come back to your place. Um, not everybody can do that. Some people need to have what they grow right next to where they live, like we do. And, uh, you know, whether people want to grow a variety of things in their yard or maybe grow a lot of one thing and share with a friend that's growing a lot of another thing. There are so many ways that you can localize your food. And this is part of you were talking so much about the inevitability of the drastic effects of climate change. And this is how we can be resilient to that. Mm. So it's it's really important. It was important enough for me that I quit my job of 16 years to do <laughs> right. it. I, I felt so strongly about it. So I, I'm really looking forward to seeding the city with lots of little gardens. Yeah. And, and these things are happening all over the place, too, uh, and with, with different twists. I mean, we visited a, a place in Dubuque, Iowa, a mm. convivium farm, which, uh, again, one thing that we have in common is we both uh, – they also farm some of their neighbors' plots – and uh, they have a big restaurant, uh, and they sell stuff as well. They've got more. They've got more capacity than we ever hoped to have. But again, uh, they're also providing a, a huge benefit to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think there's so many different angles on how this can work. Uh, you think about all the new apartments being built in, in cities like Des Moines, where you've got uh, no land at all. You don't have a backyard. You bear. You might have a balcony. Uh, how do folks there start to grow some of their own food? It is possible. It, it, it has a, its own unique set of challenges, but it is possible and it's necessary that people start think, thinking about what they can do in their you know, living situation to raise some food. And it's delicious. It can and be. we're really good eaters. And, and, a, <laughs> and I've become a much better cook. <laughs> well, one of the questions we get from people is, do you sell at farmer's market? What do you do with all that food? And the truth is we eat it. We, eat it. we, we have guests. We share with the four guests who come over once That's in a while. That's right. <laughs> we, of the moment. we have frequent guests. We had a lot of guests this week. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Yeah, so. and, and sharing food with friends, is I think it's one of the best community building experiences you can have. And, uh, you know, one thing we've also seen with our farm is that uh, we are our neighbors. It's a, it's a talking point. We, so we get to know our neighbors through what we do outside. People pass by. We have conversations, and I think it builds that community mm-hmm. that helps me feel really good about where we live and who we live near. And it's it's community. Yeah. So, if people want to learn more about uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm, I have a feeling that there are three places they can go. They can go to uh, the farm itself <laughs> in Sherman Hill, or uh, the website is birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. No and sign. No and sign. We, the and sign is part of our name, but you can't use an and sign 
sign in the website. So, so birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Right. And uh, check out the team page. Really cute pictures of the cat <laughs> and such. Yeah, and, pest control. And then, and of course, look look at the workshops. Uh, uh, we've got our curriculum outline there and uh, hope that you'll join us. And there's a Facebook page as well. There is. Yeah. All right. Hey, folks, thanks for um, thanks for uh, coming on the show, Kathy. And uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Um, we got more conversation coming for you about the Iowa caucuses and how climate is continuing to play out in that conversation. Back with you in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Trucker folks, that's uh, their tune downtown. I want to thank uh, our hosts here at La Reina, the studio where we broadcast our program, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Uh, thanks to uh, uh, Lindy Montalvo and to Juan Rodriguez for running a great operation here. Thanks to uh, all the folks who helped make this program possible, including Ashley Martinez, our producer, uh, Kathy Burns, assistant producer, and Sherry Herdina, our post-production coordinator. Uh, it takes a team to make this stuff happen, folks, and sometimes people don't realize that. Well, what I'm learning, too, about the presidential campaign is that it takes a heck of a lot of people to pull off a campaign. I, I can't tell you how many staff many of these candidates have hired in Iowa. And I want to talk to you about that, um, well, about what, what we're hearing from some of them on climate. And particularly, I want to talk to you about <laughs> Joe Biden um, pulling two $5 bills out of his wallet and what he did with those. Uh, but first, I've got to give you an update on the climate justification trial, because it isn't just Democratic candidates. It isn't just Democratic candidates running uh, for president. There are Republicans here as well. And I've met with uh, Mark Sanford, who is no longer running. I'm waiting to see if Bill Weld will show up again. And we had one opportunity to go talk with Donald Trump, who is a climate denier. And five of us were arrested protesting his climate denial at an event in West Des Moines back in June. We had our day in court on November 12th, and uh, last week we were found guilty. We disagree because um, as you read the court's ruling, you have to think, uh, is, they, uh, is, is the judge and the prosecution not tracking? They refer to, quote, our concern for the president's policy on climate change. What? The president doesn't have a policy on climate change. The president is an outright denier of the scientific proof that we are in the midst of a climate emergency. And thus, he has a complete lack of policy, so the court missed that. He does not have a policy on climate change. That was part of our problem. That's part of why we were, why we were there. And again, the court rightfully points out in the ruling that we, were, we failed to leave the property. Well, yeah, we, we failed to leave the property, but we asked... We asked to be able to go into the building to share our message with the audience briefly, and then we would leave. We weren't given that opportunity, and we felt that that opportunity was rare. I mean, Donald Trump does not come to any particular town, even Des Moines, <laughs> often, and this was our chance, especially after his visit to, to Great Britain, where he, in my opinion, embarrassed us with what he had to say about climate change. So, yeah, um, the uh, court again goes on to say, quote, the defendants did not present substantial evidence for the affirmative defense of justification in remaining on the property. We did not present substantial evidence. Uh, well, we had, uh, we had the lead scientist, Iowa scientist, on the, uh, on the climate, the, uh, the annual Iowa climate statement testify about the urgency and the imminent threat, the, the, the existing threat of climate change. Um, I don't know how that could have been any stronger. And again, what's happening around the world is making it increasingly clear that the evidence is there. That the And again, I look at some of the other things that were said. Uh, quote, the defendant argued that they were justified in remaining on the property because of climate change. And they argued that climate change was imminent. And then they refer, the, the, the uh, court's ruling refers to, quote, harms or evils that are readily apparent and recognizable to reasonable persons. It says climate change is not one of those. 
It's not a harm or evil uh, readily apparent and recognizable to reasonable persons. I'm sorry, the entire scientific community says it is a great harm and evil. It is readily apparent, and the signs are recognizable to anybody except an unreasonable person, like our president. The court goes on to say the defense is not permitted to justify acts taken to foreclose, quote, speculative and uncertain dangers. What is speculative or uncertain about climate change? I mean, we just reviewed some of the stories from this past week. There's nothing speculative or uncertain about it. Well, maybe there's a degree of uncertainty in terms of how severe it's going to be and whether the severity is making life extremely difficult for people in the future or eliminating human you know, human beings as a species entirely. That's, 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 the, uh, that's the range of uh, danger. Any of that is severe enough to justify trying to bring a message to the most powerful person in the world when it comes to influencing climate policy. The court also says that um, the defense is, quote, limited in application to act, which is, I'll, I'll read the whole thing. The defense is not permitted to justify acts taken to foreclose speculative and uncertain dangers and is therefore limited in application to acts directed at the avoidance of harm that is reasonably certain to occur. Justification is based on a real emergency. The court is making our case. I mean, that's, that's what we're saying. We're trying to wake up the president's... I mean, there were, what, several hundred people who paid money to come and hear the president... And I, you know, I doubt that they're all climate deniers. I don't know if there's any hope for getting President Trump to admit that climate change is, is real, happening, and an emergency. But maybe some of his supporters and followers might. Maybe they should have been given a chance to hear our message. Because I, I, I do want to believe that even most of those folks who were there, who had the money to go and buy a ticket to hear President Trump, that they understand that climate change um, is a harm and reasonably certain to occur, and a real emergency. So I feel the court was making our case for us. And I think the the option of an appeal makes perfect sense. All right, so flipping over to the Democratic side of the um, climate uh, conversation here in Iowa, Joe Biden shows up. Joe Biden, I've seen a lot of Joe Biden. In fact, the Second to last time I saw him, he poked me in the chest a couple times. So if he ever does become president, I can say with great pride that I was poked in the chest by the president of the United States. Uh, I was also beaten in pool by Biden once. So <laughs> we'll see what happens with this campaign. Right now, he is doubling down on Iowa because he slipped from first to fourth here. And um, his campaign, yeah, is clearly in trouble. So he's got this uh, no malarkey tour that he's doing. He's, he's going to all these small towns, which makes sense. I mean, strategically, this is a good plan. But again, I don't know if his message is going to resonate. And he continues to do <clears throat> crazy things, <laughs> say, say things that are off the wall, and do things that are really questionable. For example, um, at an event in Des Moines, <clears throat> this is event, not the same event where he poked me in the chest, uh, he, is, um, he turns his back, I, I'm standing right in front of him, uh, well, just off to the side behind a couple little kids and their parents. And I see him turn around and he pulls two $5 bills out of his wallet. <laughs> I'm thinking, what's he going to do with that? <laughs> so what does Joe Biden do with those two $5 bills? Well, he turns around and he very subtly, concealing them in his hand so well that I couldn't quite get a photograph of it. Uh, and there were other cameras there, and I'm not sure anybody got a photograph of it. But he, he hands these kids $5. Now, there was an ice cream vendor in front of the facility, and I think that's what he had in mind. Because at that point, I, I, um, I blurted out, um, Mr. Biden, uh, you're never going to get their votes with $5 bills. Andrew Yang wants to give them each $1,000. And he turns to me, he smiles, and he says, well, I, you know, $1,000 um, worth of ice cream would be a lot. I said, yeah, but they're kids. They love ice cream. He says, well, they'd have to double dip. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then I used that opportunity to question him about the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, because he's, he says he's against it, but he also says that he is um, okay with replacing existing pipelines, uh, gas pipelines. So it's confusing about where Biden stands. It's confusing in a lot of ways what Biden says and believes in. 
So anyway, um, yeah, a lot of other candidates spending a lot of time here in Iowa. Two of them, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, and um, Amy Klobuchar, both celebrated Thanksgiving here. <laughs> I was not invited, but I did get to see uh, Kamala Harris the next day. Uh, Kathy and I showed up at an event there and uh, at a house party in West Des Moines, actually in Johnston. And uh, Harris, um, as always, gives a very compelling speech about a broad range of issues, but never mentions climate, or I should say barely mentions climate, just touches on it in passing, like a, a three-second reference. So um, I'm fortunately the one to uh, get the first question in, and I, I point out that, you know, I say, look, you get a text message saying your home is on fire. Any one of us here, the media, the other, the, the caucus folks here, any of us gets a text message saying your home is on fire. We're out the door. We're onto that. Well, I point out, I said, I got that text message um, back in 2007 when Bill McKibben and I were having dinner over cornbread and, and chili. And he, he made it clear to me that all the issues I, I cared about, all the issues, I, issues I've been working on as a lawmaker, as a candidate for governor, those issues <clears throat> wouldn't matter if we didn't fix climate change, if we didn't address the elephant in the room. And so I, you know, I pointed out that, you know, we all should be um, taking that advice to heart. And it should be, you know, in, in the most recent text messages that happened, um, <clears throat> happened uh, with the report by scientists uh, saying that we have much less time than we thought we did. Anyway, um, yeah, that's the uh, news from here in Des Moines where the uh, presidential campaign is really heating up. Quick shout out to our uh, business partners in the Des Moines Metro Gateway Market and Cafe, uh, 20th and Woodland, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a catering service. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Uh, they got it all covered for you folks. Stop by, no appointment needed. That's Diversity Insurance. And thanks to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines, Iowa City, and Minneapolis. Thanks for tuning into the program, folks. If you're listening on our community-owned stations, stick around. We'll be right back with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Again, broadcasting live from Des Moines on Monday mornings at 11 o'clock Central Time. Well, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. So there are pipeline expansions and replacements and and increases in flow happening all over the country. And one that has gotten quite a bit of attention in the past and seems to be getting less attention right now for some reason is the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is the pipeline that runs from north of Standing Rock in North Dakota through South Dakota, across Iowa, more miles of it actually in Iowa than any of the other four states, and then finally into Illinois, where it connects with another pipeline and goes down to the Gulf of Mexico. So um, back in June, the Dakota Access, um, well, the parent company, Energy Transfer, uh, proposed a doubling that flow. And actually, they came at it like this. They said, we don't need your permission. <laughs> Uh, this is their message to the Iowa Utilities Board. We don't need your permission. We already got permission to build this thing. And if we just want to double the flow of oil, you know, for, with the carbon equivalent of 30 coal-fired power plants, that's our business, not yours. To their credit, the Utilities Board said, ah, not so fast. And it took them, well, I mean, three months to issue a ruling on it. And in the meantime, the Iowa Sierra Club and Bold Iowa bo both weighed in with uh, lots of feedback as to some of the problems and concerns relevant to what Dakota Access wanted to do. And so, um, you know, back in September, the uh, board issued a ruling saying, no, you, you can't just go ahead and build that thing. You've got to file for an amendment to your permit. And Dakota Access, because, <laughs> because they don't like the word no, <laughs> wrote back and said, we're going to ask you to reconsider that decision. And the board said, done, and we're sticking with our decision. So to their credit, they have um, they've held, held firm. Besides requiring 
Dakota Access to file an amendment to their permit. The Iowa Utilities Board also wants the um, wants energy transfer to hold um, you know another hearing, which makes sense to me. Uh, there were hearings held in every county. All 18 counties in Iowa had a hearing. And they also want the landowners along the route to be notified of the change. So just um, <clears throat> now this is the way the company works, of course. Uh, anytime somebody in power wants to bury a story, they release it on like a Friday afternoon or better yet, Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving. <laughs> so that's when Dakota Access uh, filed their petition, their amendment with the utilities board saying, okay, we are, we're, we're, we're going to go along with your game. We're going to file an amendment to, you know, to increase the flow by a factor, by, by doubling the flow of oil through this pipeline. But we also have a, we also am asking for a waiver from the requirements to hold a public hearing and to notify landowners. So, you know, the, uh, it's interesting to me that some of the things that they said, that, that energy transfer said in their filing, they said they needed the increase, the increase was needed, quote, to meet increased market demand for transportation of crude oil. Okay, so what does that mean, increased market demand? Well, apparently it's not U.S. markets that are demanding this increase because the story last week, the U.S. has now become a net exporter of crude oil. Now, Dakota Access knows that, and they know that most of the oil they will be transporting from the Bakken region in North Dakota to their refinery in Texas, they know that that oil is largely going to be heading overseas. But they ignore that fact, and uh, in paragraph 7 of the filing, uh, there's a four-part filing, the fourth component of the filing, uh, they write, quote, in order to satisfy that demand, we, well, well, saying we, we need this increase, we need to double the oil, quote, in order to satisfy that demand and delivery that benefits all Americans. <laughs> Again, saying that after the news that America has now, the U.S. has now become a net exporter of crude oil, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that they're trying to put a finesse on this that's not consistent with reality or their actual goals. Their goal is to make money, lots of it. I mean, Kelsey Warren is already one of the richest people in the world. He's the owner of Energy Transfer Partners, or Energy Transfer Company now. And, you know, he just wants to get richer. I don't know what it is about rich about wealth, folks, but there's some folks that they, they just can't get enough of it. You know, it's like, I guess it's like me with pumpkin pie. Uh, I just can't get enough of it. But, you know, and, and I would do myself in if I had too much pumpkin pie. And uh, Kathy's pumpkin pie is so good that I might actually happen. But um, meanwhile, you have folks like Energy Transfer Partners CEO Kelsey Warren, who's not satisfied with uh, being what the one of the top fifty richest people in the U.S. He's got to have more. So instead of saying, "Yeah, this is for me to get really, really rich," he tries to spin it as something that's really beneficial to. The little guy, the average American, all Americans. Now, of course, everything about this filing ignores the reality of the climate crisis, again, which is becoming more and more prominent in the news, more and more of, of, of a matter of concern, and more and more serious. Again, if you have any questions about where we're going on that, listen to the first segment of today's program. But the, uh, the reality is that Energy Transfer Partners is completely ignoring the climate component of this equation. And best estimates are, if we allow ETP to double the flow of oil through the Dakota Access Pipeline, once all that crude oil is burned and that, those carbon emissions head up into the atmosphere, that's the equivalent of 30 new coal-fired power plants. And at a time, when we have to begin to reverse our carbon emissions. Uh, they, 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 they continue to rise. And if you, if, if you continue to allow for more oil to be shipped, more pipelines to be built, old pipelines to be replaced, you're going to see that carbon footprint continue to rise. 
so we'll see what happens here. Um, there are obviously the um, the company has to get approval in all four states. I know there has been pushback in North Dakota. No surprise there. Uh, not only are the uh, Standing Rock Sioux and other tribes so, I mean, very directly affected by the pipeline and very concerned about it and very vocal about it and very well organized. But there are other components, other elements of the community in North Dakota, including some state agencies that aren't happy with the way things have gone. I don't really have an update on what's happening in South Dakota, but I know in Illinois, uh, a lot of stuff has come up in Illinois as well. Um, and uh, the Sierra Club there is one of the organizations that have been filing concerns before the Illinois Commerce Commission. I need to get a little more research done there and update you on that. But um, again, if any one of these four states uh, fails to approve, decides against the, um, the expansion, it ain't going to happen. So we'll see where this goes. But um, I hope that more and more concerns are raised about climate. Uh, I, I do think that the, um, the, the fact that the company is not willing to have a public hearing you know, suggests to me, well, what are you trying to hide? What are you, what are you going to against sharing this information in a broader platform with the general public? After all, you say it, quote, benefits all Americans. Well, maybe all Americans ought to be a part of that conversation. Now, one other component of the uh, proposed increase that I want to mention is, uh, and I don't know whether, I, I need to research this more as well, because Energy Transfer Partners did not research it very well. Uh, they were asked, there were two questions in the, uh, that the Iowa Utilities Board posed. One was, um, okay, so because so much oil is going to be pumped through, again, this is a pipeline, a 30-inch pipeline designed to transport 570,000 barrels of oil a day. And now Energy Transfer wants to increase that to 1.1 million barrels a day. That's a huge increase. And so and that's, that's why they want to make all these changes to the pumping station near Cambridge, Iowa, to, be, to better accommodate pumping that oil through that pipeline. The other thing they want to do is add something called DRA, or Drag Reducing Agent. And that... Um, that uh, agent would uh, would make it easier to have that oil flow through the pipeline. I don't I don't know all the details, but what the IUB asked for was expert testimony on that element of their proposal, and also expert testimony on whether or not the additional oil would pose an additional threat or risk in the case of a spill. So energy transfer answered those questions, but. They were their own expert. <laughs> they were the expert testimony that said, nah, not a problem. Yeah, no problem adding that DRA. No additional problem if there's a spill. And they always like to say if, but we know it's not if. We know it's when. I mean, when? We just had a big spill on the Keystone Pipeline in North Dakota. We've had, if you go to Facebook and, and track down a page called um, uh, something to the effect of oil and gas pipeline, pipeline leaks and spills and in the 20, you know, in the 21st century. It's a long page. It goes on and on and on. And whoever's maintaining it continues to add to it. And there's always, unfortunately, something to add. Sometimes there are small spills, small leaks, but sometimes they're devastating. And even if it's a relatively small leak and it's your land that gets contaminated, your water supply that gets contaminated, your property values that get tanked, it's a big deal to those people involved. So, I, I'm hoping uh, that the utilities board pushes back against uh, energy transfers. Says, you know, you you we want we want an outside expert who's not biased, who's not who's independent to answer these questions. We don't expect you know your response to be adequate. We'll see if they do that. In the meantime, one thing that has shocked me is the near total media blackout on reporting about this. You know. It, and I will say this, it took the media in Iowa, uh, the, the mainstream media in Iowa, it took them a long time to get up to speed on, to begin reporting on the Dakota Access Pipeline's proposed construction in the first place. Landowners, farmers, environmentalists, native people, we were all onto it in 2014, in 2015. I don't think it was till somewhere in 2016 that you really started seeing much reporting. Now, one exception, I, I didn't, when I, when I walked from southeast Iowa 
to northwest Iowa, 400 miles along the proposed route of the pipeline. I got fairly good press coverage on that. Um, they, you know, especially the local smaller papers, um, smaller radio stations, even the, the smaller market TV stations were interested in why somebody would walk that length and also what kind of conversations I was having. And, and it was, it was, it was um, I, you know, it, I guess it was somewhat novel. But the fact that this pipeline was being built in the first place was novel. Uh, and that deserved, deserved attention. It did eventually get attention, a lot of attention, and attention beyond Iowa. And now, for some reason, there's no interest. I mean, they basically want to build the equivalent of a second pipeline, doubling the flow of oil, and there's no interest. I don't get that. And um, we will continue to make sure that, uh, you know, if, if, the, if the mainstream media are going to fail to talk about it, then it's up to those of us who are trying to provide alternative sources of information for people because it's an important issue. I will say this. Ten of the 17 or 18, I can't lose count now, presidential candidates on the Democratic side all came out with a statement against doubling the flow of oil. That's significant. Of course, that also has not been covered by the mainstream media. Anyway, folks, uh, that's the news today. Uh, Ed Fallon with you, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Stay tuned for more great programming if you're listening on uh, La Reina. Otherwise, check out the Fallon Forum as a podcast and on various community-owned stations around the country.